When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live. Bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, everybody. I'm Jeff Edgers, the national arts reporter at The Washington Post. Um, And we have a treat for you today. Somebody who uh, makes me a little nervous to talk to her because she's a professional. And, you know, I just do what I can here. Uh, Kelly Ripa. Um, And and Kelly, uh, I'm just going to introduce you quickly. But as we know, you're uh, we see you on TV uh, on live. We've seen that since 2001. you are an actress, whether it's a sitcom or in the soap operas. You are a mother and you are an author. I'm holding this book. You'll forgive me. I got a little coffee on the cover. I'll get another, I'll give this to my daughter and, and, and buy another one for my dad. And, uh, but you have a book out now, uh, your first, Livewire, Long-Winded Short Stories. Um, this is not a memoir, people. Do not go to the memoir section. These are essays. And um, they're fascinating uh, because they're, uh, we should make this clear, a lot of famous people have people like me who aren't famous write their books for them and then they put their names on them. But in this case, Kelly, you have written this entire book yourself. It is exactly like the person we think we know, but there are things we learn that we, we would have never found out. So tell me what would make a person in your position, a happy life seemingly, write a book. Jeff, first of all, thank you for having me. And I am the nervous one today. Uh, you know, I feel like I've finally, I've hit the big time, Washington Post. I can like go home and tell my parents what I did today. And it's very exciting. And uh, I just want to point out that I do own more than just this shirt. Mm. <laughs> this apparently seems to be a shirt that makes me feel comfortable. So I wear it a lot. But I do, I promise, own more than this shirt. What would compel me to write a book uh, at this stage of my life, I would say would be a combination of stupidity, hubris, audacity, um, uh, back to stupidity again. It was far harder than I anticipated it being. I thought because I read books that I would be able to write one. Um, and I don't really still understand what compelled me other than the fact that my children were all out of the house with the exception of my youngest son. He was a senior in high school while I was writing this. My husband was living in Vancouver and actually stuck there because of COVID. They had closed the borders between Canada and the U.S., so he was there. And I was really alone with nothing but um, my thoughts and my old journals and old memories. And, you know, you start cleaning out one drawer, and the next thing you know, you're writing a collection of essays, which, Jeff, I thought would be easier and less complicated than writing a memoir, but I think I got that wrong. You probably know better, and I didn't know 
honestly, that you were available to write my book, maybe the next book I will utilize you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm always there if you need any kind of writing tips, <laughs> though. Frankly, I should be taking the tips from you. Um, I'll tell you, we're going to get into the meat of this book, but uh, just to give you a little small thing as a writer and a human being, I just love little lines. They're all over this book. Uh, you're, you're driving with your husband, and uh, and we'll talk about him because he's a very handsome man. And um, you you describe this experience. I'm trying to find this mo moment where you say, uh, you know, we're, 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 I'm, I'm giving him my silence for an hour, or as Waze says, uh, four feet. I think that was the, yeah. the line in there. I couldn't find it in here, but I remembered it. But you have a very good sense of humor and that comes through. Um, Mark, I wanna ask you about this guy. It seems to me like this is, you, you married him the way Axl Rose maybe would get married. You uh, went to Vegas and you, and you got married five days after he dumped you. Dumped you, what the yeah. heck is that all about? And, uh, and yet here we are uh, more than a quarter of a century later and you and this handsome man are, are happily married. Please explain to me why that is a good recipe for a long marriage. It's a terrible recipe. I can't to this day understand why we worked out the way we did um, because it starts out on paper. And as I was writing it, I went back and I reread it and I reread it. And I sort of, uh, I, I rewrote a lot of what I had originally written because it turns out it shouldn't have worked out the way it did, you know, and, and uh, people who marry their co-stars, it's almost always ends in a disaster. And, um, and especially the way we got married, you know, we had broken up as you pointed out. Um, and we wound up doing a segment on Regis and Kathy Lee for a mother's day special and we were not speaking to one another. And I firmly believe, and I still believe it to this day, if smartphones had existed with all of the apps and all of the bells and whistles that they have now, we would not be together because we would have been playing Wordle or shopping for real estate or on a dating app or something like that. But those things didn't exist. So we were, compelled, forced, if you will, to interact with each other uh, the way people used to. And we wound up flying to Las Vegas the very next day and getting married. And I think the reason that we have stayed together all of these years is because before we broke up, we were really good friends. We loved each other and dare I say, we had the hots for each other. You know, at the time we were young, we were in our mid twenties, we were cute, you know, and we really, you know, found, e we were each other's cup of tea. We found each other sexy, but none of that sustains a marriage, right? Because none of that lasts. Everything is affected by gravity. And, um, what we had and what we have now is what we had in the beginning, which was this mutual love for each other, but we had a mutual like for each other. We really liked each other and we respected one another and we grew together and we became each other's biggest champions. And we are 
not competitive with each other. It's not about who's doing this or who's doing that or who's not doing this or who's. We really um, build each other up and we push each other up the hill and pull each other up the hill. And we take turns doing that in every aspect of our marriage, in every aspect uh, when it came to raising our children who are grown now. But we were really a united front and we tackled everything about our lives, our marriage, our careers that way as, as a team. It was a team effort. And if you're not a good team member, you're not going to be a good spouse. So, um, you know, you uh, in the clip that was leading into this, you were talking about being uh, the difference between being a man and a woman in this universe. And um, mm. I mean, I don't know how much you've you, you, I believe you probably know the comedian Sarah Cooper, but she's written these incredible books about uh, their drawings. But they also describe, you know, when a man comes in and he's got an idea, he comes into the room. I've got this idea. Damn it. And we're going to make it happen. And a woman comes in. They're like, oh, she's pushy. Uh, why, why are we going to, what, what the heck is, and you have to go, uh, look guys, I, I have a suggestion. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but it's, it's an idea. So yeah. you've lived through this. You've seen a change in the workplace. And, um, and that's where I want to get to Regis, who's a, a major part of your book or has a, has a major part in this section of your book, which is Regis, who we know as playing Regis very successfully. Um, you know, you came into that show later in the game, and we like to think of our TV people as best friends, that you, you know, he was your father figure, he brought you in, he nurtured you, but in reality, you were two people playing a role. And you finally deal with this in the book in a way that I think sets the record straight. Can you talk a little bit to that? Sure, I think there's this common um, I, I mean, I know because I've been on the other side of it, right? So there's this common misconception that the main host, the the host that's there, is sort of hand selecting their co-host. And that is not true. It is a decision that happens in private rooms way over our heads, way above our pay grade. And I sort of take the stance and you know, it's if you don't read the book, you would really not be able to understand this. I sort of take Regis aside in all of this because he had paid his dues. He had, you know, been on this show since its inception. Um, and and so I, you know, I don't necessarily think that he should have been assigned a co-host. I think that when you've paid your dues that long and you've been there, you know, it was, I don't know if it was like, 15 years or something, 10 years when I got there, um, he should have had the right to choose his co-host or not have one. Um, I did not know any of that at the time. I sort of came in really ignorant and, and not prepared. And after a very short uh, period, I um, my first co-hosting day was November 1st of 2000 and I was announced as the permanent host. Um, I mean, I was announced in, I think January or February of 2001, but they had offered me the job in, I think it was December. And so it happened super fast and I was not prepared for the, um, 
internal conflicts that went on between these two divisions of the same company. So there was the local distribution WABC here in New York City, and then there was the ABC network. I did not understand that those were different things, <laughs> that there were different presidents, vice presidents, bosses, CEOs. I did not understand any of that. I thought it's all on Channel 7 here, right? So I didn't realize that we were syndicated and we were NBC and CBS and Fox and ABC and we were all over the country. And so it was this very strange ignorance is bliss moment for me, but also I didn't get that there wasn't more of um, like a celebratory feeling. It didn't feel celebratory. Well, I Kelly, felt- Kelly I, I read, when I read um, the way that you describe it, it reminds me a little bit like David Letterman where, uh, or Johnny Carson to date me even more. They sit at the table, someone comes on as a guest and you think they're chummy. And then during commercial, they sit in total silence. They don't go out to dinner with these people. I mean, when you would talk to Regis, I feel like you would say, hey, you know, I'm going skiing this weekend. Save it for the show. You know, like it was Save just- Save it for the show, yes. That was, and I think you're very gracious in the way you explain this, but it took you probably a period of time to realize this is a different kind of relationship. This is an old school kind of professional relationship yeah. and you're probably naturally friendly and you want to maybe be a little bit, you know, more friendly and, and that's not what this is. Well, I came from, you know, I came from this this tribe of cast members at All My Children. It's an ensemble. There were 40 of us. We were like siblings. We had very, uh, you know, the, uh, David Canary, who played my father, who was really like a father figure to me. And, and I had, you know, uh, Eva LaRue, who played my sister-in-law, is godmother to my son, Michael. You know, we are very close. So many of us are still very close. And so when I came to the broadcast side, I thought it was a very similar thing. I did not realize that it wasn't like that. And so it was, you know, it was difficult being the new girl. I felt like it was the first day of high school all over again. Um, but, you know, I think that Regis had this magic that he was maybe superstitious, ritualistic. He liked everything to unfold on camera. He did not want to hear conversations <laughs> off camera. Anything I had to say had to be saved for on camera, including Save it for morning. the show. Save, Save it, it okay. for the show was like, Sorry. that was it. And like I said, the few times that we did socialize off camera, we genuinely enjoyed each other's company. I found, I, I still find him to be the greatest storyteller I ever knew. He took you on a journey. And if I'm a good storyteller, it's because I learned by watching him. And it was a great privilege to sit there and watch him. But you do realize like, People really expected, I think people expected that when he left, I would leave as if that was a choice that I could make at that time. You know, it's all about keeping the franchise on the air and 
and finding a replacement. And that's what it is. It's, you know, it's like all of those franchise shows, you know, uh, from Stephen Colbert to Jimmy Fallon, Jay Leno, Dave Letterman, our show is a franchise show in the same way. It, it doesn't end with me. When I leave, somebody else will join the show. That's just the way it is. And, and, um, and I think that's what people really have to understand is that there are certain shows where it's really, you may grow accustomed to the people hosting it and you fall in love with them and you want them there forever. And I get that. I was a viewer of the show. For, I thought that Regis and Kathy Lee were married for years. I did not realize that they were not. Um, yeah, they, so, I, she was married to that uh, John Davidson, I think. Uh, I, was it Kathy like, Lee I, Crosby? I've never even heard of her. Listen, um, I think you handled it beautifully in here. And I'm going to just say uh, I'm going to endorse your handling of the Regis situation. It's very graceful and funny and detailed and well worth reading. I, I, um, I'm conscious of how much is in this book and in your life and how little time we have. So I want to shift over to something which, you know, uh, we look at you as a totally put together, smart, engaging. Really, you even you made fun of my bosses, the guy uh, from Amazon, you know, his rocket ship. I can't even say what you called it in the book. It's kind of profane, but it's a little um, profane. Yeah, you could say you can say it. I can't. I'm not going to say it here. All right. Okay. Fine. People I know uh, watch it. It's in the get book. Get the audio book. Get the audio book if you want to hear me say it. Oh, whoa. Tempting. All right. Wait. So, um, what you write about, though, in here, just to shift it a little bit, is uh, it, it, it's quite courageous. You write about uh, being very anxious when you have to make public speeches and also just going through. I mean, there's a point where you're talking, I think, to your therapist and you're talking about. Um, uh, how you wake up in the morning just dreading going into work sometimes. And when you're with your kids, you're like thinking about work. And when you're at work, you're thinking about your kids and Sunday comes. And it's it's something that is very relatable, but I didn't really understand what was going on with you. And I'd like you to sort of explain to us why you told us about that and 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 what your hopes are for how that, you know, is laid out there. You know, it's it's so funny because I feel like there are certain things that I say on the air and that I've said for years on the air that don't really land. Maybe people think you're joking. They think you're, you know, trying to uh, rib yourself or be self-deprecating. But I've talked about being extremely socially anxious and this fear of public speaking that I have two things that necessarily don't align with the career that I have chosen to have now for 23 years. And so, um, you know, it's one of these things where it had started to become debilitating. Like I would make it so, um, the fear of waking up and going out and speaking in front of the audience and to the audience at home. And if I had something to do after work that involved an audience, I would be uh, like a, a shaking, like a near wreck. I couldn't eat. If I had to do another talk show in the evening, you know, if I had to do a letterman say, I wouldn't be able to eat for the entire day because I would be, my stomach would be in knots. And um, I think I 
it didn't really land until I wrote about it, which is such an interesting thing when you think about it. It's like the written word sometimes has more depth to it or breadth to it, or people take it more literally when you when you write it down. And I, I think I wrote about it because I know that I'm not alone because I work with so many people who are functioning. Uh, you know, there are high functioning people that have so much anxiety in their lives and the way that people choose to deal with it. I mean, there are so many different ways people choose to deal with it. You know, I went to therapy because I found that I was not my coping skills. I didn't have the tools. I had no tools. So my tools were to allow my brain to consume itself and for me to work myself into a state of terror. You know, when we were doing Hope and Faith, that was in front of a live studio audience every Friday night. And Faith Ford would have to come in and sort of pull me out of the dressing room and I would be shaking and trembling backstage and she would just be caressing me and holding me and she's like, it's gonna be great. You have so much fun when you're out there. And she's right. When I'm out there, I have so much fun, but it's the buildup before. And so I really sought therapy as a way to sort of deal with the stress and learn how to manage my own anxiety and learn different breathing techniques, meditation techniques, and sort of asking myself these questions like, so then what? Well, if you bomb, so then what? Well, hmm. Well, then what would happen? You know, and the answers are always, well, nothing happens. Life goes on, right? And so I think I wrote about it to prove to people that if if I can do what I do and embarrass myself literally at least six to seven times a week, right, in profound and large ways on live TV and in ways I – sometimes I embarrass myself in ways I never even see coming – but it doesn't kill you. It really doesn't kill you. And if you can just learn tools to manage your stress, whether it's with an app, whether it's with a, a with a group therapy or private therapy, or you know, there are so many different ways now because people talk about it in a more open fashion. And I think the more people talk about it, or somebody like me who may seem put together, but you know, to know that I'm really like the duck floating on the water that you see and the duck is sitting there and you don't really see the ripples, but underneath the water, the ducks, you know, you see those legs are working overtime to know that that is happening to me. Like as we are doing this right now, I can honestly tell you that if you could see my, my legs are shaking, you know, Oh my and- God, relax. It's, it's okay. I, I mean, my I'm not even wearing any socks. But look, here's the thing. Um, because you at one point, I know you got uh, you got this Botox injection under your arms because yeah. you were sweating so much because you were so anxious, right? Yep. Yep. And let me tell you something. When you are turning to Botox in your armpits, that's yeah. when you know you are not managing your stress well enough because it was just, it was uncontrolled. I looked like I had run a marathon and I would, I hadn't even gone out on the air yet and it looked like I had run a marathon. And I, you know, I always go back to, um, uh, Albert Brooks in 
uh, what's the movie? Broadcast, broadcast, broadcast news. Broadcast yeah, absolutely. News. It's hilarious. I want to ask you, because um, we only have a few minutes. So Ryan Seacrest, um, that guy, uh, same problem. Does he say, save it for the show? What, what is he, is, is it a different relationship there because you were there and, and, and you can influence how that relationship flows? I think there's some of, I mean, obviously there's so much of that, right? When you're the person who has been the new guy, you want to make the new guy as comfortable as possible. But with Ryan and me, we have a 20 year prior to this show relationship. We've been friends for two decades. And um, so we have a camaraderie, we're like siblings, we have a very different relationship. In fact, I never thought that they would ever hire Ryan because <laughs> my fear was that they're gonna know somehow that we are friends and that's going to impede the whole process, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think because there's like group superstition, right? When the show started, it was about, you know, when the show started back in whatever, the late 80s, it was about two strangers coming together and discovering what the other did the night before and, you know, all of that on live TV. And Ryan and I frequently have dinner together the night before, but you can still talk about that you know, the next day, you don't have to be complete strangers. I mean, we've done 20 minute host chats based on Ryan FaceTiming me and me going into my husband's closet to figure out what kind of underwear he wears because Ryan's looking for a new underwear brand. I mean, literally, you know, it's like, that's, that's what relationships can be on TV. We have a very unique, for me, situation because we know each other and we were friends, you know, way before the show. We'll be friends way after the show. It's like that. He, we're like, we really are like siblings, you know. And Mike Kelly, kids, do you? Um, uh, uh, do you? Uh, I'm very interested. In, I mean, you've written this one book. It's hugely successful, right? It's like up there with uh, John Grisham or something, right? I can't believe, uh, can't believe I mean, you you, you seem daunted in the book. You talk about being daunted about James Patterson. That guy, he he doesn't write anything. He just has, everybody writes for him. I, I've written 12 <laughs> of his books. Uh, so look, you have he this great editor. Said me, he said to me, why don't, he's like, you should have had a ghostwriter. What's wrong with you? He has, he has <laughs> I, last book he had, he had seven ghostwriters. But, um, so your great editor, you have this great editor, Carrie Thornton. Does she say, uh, look, Kelly, uh, I'm, a, I'm an editor. You've written this amazing book. It's so successful. How about number two? Or is that something you're not even thinking about right now? And what would it be? So right now, right now, uh, she's just letting me get comfortable because she knows me now, right? Um, and the editing, pro she cut 200 pages out of this book, by the way. So there's obviously we could have a book too. Obviously yeah. there's 200 pages of pure gold. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's... I think my second book would be about me and the attempts I made to try to get out of going on a book tour. <laughs> because I write from a place of complete everything that is happening in my life 
is what I write about. You know, um, I'm not ready to write a memoir because I just feel like I have a lot left to learn and do and grow. But I never say never to anything, but I will say to write now, I'd rather just sort of sit in the uncomfortableness of me having a book out on the market for purchase right now. I have not, I have yet to actually be able to walk into a bookstore right now without us document, like the first day the book came out, I walked into the Strand bookstore downtown and I took an awkward video of me standing next to my own books just to show people how uncomfortable I was with the entire thing because it just, you know, it, um, Cal Penn, the great Cal Penn, who had uh, been promoting his memoir on my show while I was, my book had just gone into edit. We had just started the editing process. And he said, what level of self-loathing are you? And I, it was the thing that I took hold of. I said, oh my gosh, I, I despise myself. And he said, then you're almost done. And it was so <laughs> funny to have like this, this Eureka, somebody gets me. Finally, somebody well, understands we, uh, Kelly, me. Kelly Ripa, we like you. Uh, and I represent America, as you know, and the journalism establishment. Um, this is you, your Jeff. book right here. Uh, and I hope people will go out and, and pick it up. This is a good, good picture on here. You posted a good picture on Instagram. I'm not sure I can show that to my children either. But um, look, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> A pleasure to have you here. Uh, I'm sorry your legs were shaking, but honestly, uh, you, you, I think you pulled it off. I think, I think it Thank went you, okay. Jeff. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brands Park American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.